Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. We've had progress at last on the US debt ceiling. I think it's worth marking that point. Uh, secondly, we've had a lot of sentiment and inflation data out of the Eurozone during the week, uh, which certainly have implications for the path of Eurozone interest rates from here. And we, we got phenomenal labour market data out of Ireland again this week. Um, the unemployment rate now down at 3.8% of the labour force, which is the lowest level of unemployment uh, that we've ever seen in this country. And, and I'd like to start there, if I may, Chris. Um, on Wednesday, after the release of that unemployment data for Ireland, um, I tweeted that 3.8% unemployment rate in May, Ireland really is a failed entity. Um, I got incredible blowback on Twitter. Um, 154,000 people viewed the tweet, which in my experience is probably by thousands uh, the most attention anything I've ever tweeted has generated. So that, that says something. But the response I got on Twitter was quite phenomenal. Um, I was called everything from a fat fool Predictions I made on the economy more than 15 years ago were thrown at me. Um, the level of vitriol and abuse thrown was quite incredible. Also, um, I, I think which is very interesting is, you know, there clearly are people out there who really, really, really um, do not like life. I know you intervened and um, you got the blowback as well. So what do you think? Well, I shouldn't have done. What's it telling us? Um, I broke my iron rule of n not getting involved in those kinds of Twitter things. But I was sitting at gate 335 in Dublin Airport and uh, bored because uh, Aer Lingus was doing its usual um, th three gate changes, delay, 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 and no announcements of uh, any of the gate changes. And so I was bored and I was angry and unfortunately opened the Twitter machine 
and got stuck in. And I too experienced a lot of the same similar blowback that you got. And I think it's um, interesting in a couple of regards. One, it's just a reminder not to do it because you do expose yourself to all of the crazies out there and they are crazy. And particularly don't ever engage with somebody that doesn't actually use their real name as a Twitter handle because you just know that you're probably dealing with a Russian bot. So don't do it is rule number one, probably rule number two and rule number three as well. The other lessons that one can take from this is that you could criticise the coalition Fina Gael and Fina Foyle, um, forever. You could throw all sorts of mud at them, hit them with metaphoric sticks and brickbats, and um, you'd be fine on social media, I suspect. But if you contain a hint, just a hint, or even a direct uh, criticism of Sinn Féin, that's when they all come out. It, it's quite clear that you're not allowed to criticise Sinn Féin on social media. Um, I had one chap, or person shall we say i'm not even sure if it, it may not have been a person it may have been a bot as i say saying that because half the population is now going to vote for Sinn Féin i need to be careful in criticizing them now i don't know whether that was a friendly warning or a sinister threat or or what, what, whatever it was um i found it interesting because at the very least it was denying my right to free speech in a very curious way which was to say because Sinn Féin is going to be the next party in government, you're not allowed to criticise them, which is, I think, a very weird argument to make. But it clearly touched a nerve, this point that you made about the all-time low unemployment rate. And any listener to this podcast would know the context in which you made that somewhat goading remark. And if people don't expect to be goaded on Twitter, they really need to go and do something else other than appear on that platform. Because we have co commented many times about the political position of not just Sinn Féin, but other um, parties, opposition parties, are they are they try to gain political advantage by painting Ireland as a dystopian nightmare. I mean, we've always acknowledged that the problems that um, Ireland Inc. has in terms of its health and education um, and housing issues, and we, we recognise that some people's lives are really tough, that you know, real people do have real difficulties. But we're also macro people and understand the data in the round holistically and how much better, on average, things are compared to a few years ago, and how infinitely better they are compared to decades ago. So these are the points that we make continuously, and we continuously get misrepresented and misunderstood. People um, with this Twitter blowback were putting words in my mouth about um, all sorts of different things, um, as well as insulting me. They were saying things that, claiming that I said things that I hadn't, and similarly for you. So we're always very careful about what we say, and we just hope that people listen and the context is that we think it's very unfair to claim political advantage as a result of Ireland being, a, economically speaking at least, a dystopian hellhole. And we think that when data like this comes out to support our position, it's our right to publicise it. But, that, that, you know, we, we, this one is just going to go on and on. And at the, at the end of the day, Jim, I don't know how many people we're actually going to be able to convince the context for all of this, as you mentioned, is really important. It is an incredibly low unemployment rate and it follows on a record level of employment of just over 2.6 million in the first quarter. So basically anybody out there who wants a job um, pretty much can get a job at this juncture. So it's it's pretty much a fully employed economy. Um, we have always spoken about, and I readily admit, uh, you know, we, we have... A huge housing issue and I've said it many many times 
on this podcast and in various presentations that I do around the country that for me, from a social and economic and a political perspective, housing is the most important issue and the biggest challenge facing Ireland. Uh, we obviously have challenges in the delivery of public services generally, particularly health. So I, I wouldn't be suggesting for one moment that Ireland is a paradise. But I, what I would say is that um, the labour market situation today, relative to the labour market situation I grew up with in the 1980s, it's a far, far different place. And, you know, how people can turn around and actually criticise record levels of employment, um, record low levels of unemployment and, and a, a labour market that clearly is offering opportunity. And indeed, some of the comments coming back were that people were working for nothing and that if people are working for nothing, well, then you're obviously if they're prepared to work for nothing, you're obviously going to get a high level of employment. But uh, there is no evidence to suggest that. I mean, if you look at the quarter four earnings data, uh, there was year on year growth on average of about four and a half percent. So, you know, w wages are rising as they should be. And I, I have absolutely no problem with that, particularly in an environment where we've seen so many cost of living pressures over the last 18 months. Um, but, you know, to, to suggest that people are working for nothing um, and that there's massive exploitation of people out there in the workforce, um, I, I just don't see it. But maybe I live in a Closeted silo, and I'm not exposed to all of that. That was the accusation that was thrown at us that we do live in this privileged, closeted silo um, that we inhabit. And of course, I think we both reject it. The, the thing that I think was really interesting was the, the, the point that a very sensible person on Twitter made, which is that not all change is for the better. And the context of that remark is that um, people that were throwing these brickbats at us and getting apoplectically angry at us for suggesting that, as we were not suggesting, but claiming that we suggested that the island is is a, 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 a uniformly a good paradise-type place, Garden of Eden. We've never said that. We've always acknowledged the, the problems and the issues and that the, some people really, really do struggle. But the point that we've often made, and this is the context of this particular person, is that, yes, if you think that all of the problems that Ireland faces as part of the overall picture, which is not dystopian, um, will make things better, you need to be very, very careful about radical change. Because as the country in which I spend most of my time these days, the UK, um, radical change will produce radical outcomes. And uh, the UK economy, unlike Ireland, has been stagnant for 15 years now. There are numerous other examples I could cite about how, yes, in order to address problems, you vote for big political change, you vote for the populist party that promises you political change and promises you that things will get better. It ain't necessarily so. Change can be for the worse. Change can make your existing problems worse, not better. And that's one of the warnings that we've always gotten given about these alternative economic policies that different parties propose is that they do need to be appraised and they do need you do need to ask the question about Ireland's economic model that has produced the Ireland that you have today. Whatever label you want to put on it, it is what it is. And we can go through data like unemployment saying it's a fantastic place. We can go through house prices and say it's a terrible place and reach an overall conclusion. But it is the modern Ireland of today. If you elect a radical government... Um, promising change, 
that's what you will get. And the question that you need to also ask, which isn't asked enough, is that will that change be for the better? So it's, 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 a, it's a, a way of warning. And just making that point alone, that the changes that radical politicians are going to introduce may not make things better. My God, you should have seen the reaction that one got on Twitter. But I think I guess that um, nobody will be surprised by that. But I certainly wasn't, Jim. I'm kind of curious about now. I mean, I have believed for some time that there is obviously a really high probability uh, that Sinn Féin will play a major role in the next government um, as part of a coalition. I think that that is definitely what the opinion polls are suggesting. I think um, given the dire performance of Fianna Gael, particularly in the opinion polls, but Fianna Fáil not doing particularly well either, and the Greens under serious pressure, um, putting this coalition back together again could prove very difficult. But if Sinn Féin do form the next government after an election which has to be held but before February 2025, um, I don't believe for one moment actually that Sinn Féin's policies will solve the housing crisis um, and indeed will solve the other problems in the delivery of public services that we criticise and talk about um, and the less positive side of the economic story here. But I don't believe the policies of Sinn Féin will actually solve those problems. So I'm just wondering if 12 or 24 months into the life of a Sinn Féin government, if it's obvious that these problems are not being solved, and I hope they are solved, but if it's obvious that they're not being solved, how will all these people be reacting? You know, the, the, these people who are having such a personalised attack on me over positive comments I made about the economy, uh, which is purely driven by politics on their part, how will they react, I wonder? You know, that's... That, to me, is going to be an intriguing development to watch over the coming years. If, they, if, if people out there think that it's reasonable, normal, um, well-adjusted behaviour to attack somebody for saying nice things about Ireland, I don't think they're going to change their mind, Jim, whatever happens. Um, it reminds me very much of the ultra-Brexiteers over here. Um, we know, without a shadow of a doubt, that Brexit has been an absolute disaster. We know that we can measure that, we can quantify it, we can show what just how bad it has been. We can show, indeed, how people feel about it. I mean, we can observe um, life in Britain has been degraded by Brexit. All of these things, and yet, and yet, some people have changed their minds as a result of those facts, but an awful lot of people haven't. And the sort of people that, um, I think, have a go at you because you say nice things about Ireland, um, are very, you know, they would find uh, fellowship and uh, good cheer in company with these ultra-Brexiteers who still think that um, Brexit was a good idea and, den and deny reality. So I think there will be a significant cohort of, of people in Ireland who, who are similar. And that's the nature of populism. That's the nature of political tribalism. And um, it's that we don't change our minds. Uh, quite a few of us in the face in the face of this reality. So don't get your hopes up, because the thing about the break the, the failed Brexit revolution it's like all failed revolutions throughout history. You know, the communist ones, um, the true believers who um, witnessing the, the degradation and the, the political awfulness of what communist Eastern Europe and Russia looked like in the fifties and sixties in particular before the Berlin Wall came down, they just said, well, you know, communism hasn't been tried yet. We haven't implemented it properly. And there are still people around like that. So come your revolution um, in two years' time, Jim, because I think that uh, 
if those policies that are promised are implemented, and I think there's an if there, which we probably shouldn't go into today, but if you do elect this radical government, when you do have your mini-revolution, and it doesn't produce the results that are promised, um, don't be surprised if the revolutionaries uh, carry on with their um, claim that the revolution hasn't been tried properly yet, and it'll just go on and on. Um, my recommendation my recommendation would be not to have a revolution, because as as we keep saying, Ireland in the round is not a bad place at the moment. But that's just the view of two aging economists. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I, I suppose my part of comment of this would be that a very simple comment on Twitter really, really... Uh, brought the monsters out of the swamp and um, I don't engage I didn't respond to one person um, and I actually rarely look at comments on anything I say or do or post on Twitter uh, but I was kind of intrigued by uh, the absolute um, vitriol that uh, accompanied it so a bit sadistic I suppose on my part don't ever be nice about Ireland again that's the message there Jim not not on Twitter anyway that is the message I'm going to go around permanently miserable about life. OK, Chris, moving on to uh, a story that has dominated the last month um, and, and probably didn't have the sort of market reaction that you might have expected, given how serious the issue is and was. Uh, that is the US debt ceiling. Um, I, I suppose we, we always believed at the end of the day that the 31.4 trillion debt ceiling, which is due to be hit around the 5th or 6th of June that the, it would be, the ceiling would be lifted and that uh, defaults and significant cuts in public sector spending, including on public sector workers, uh, would actually not happen. Um, and I think that obviously was the market belief as well, that when push comes to shove, uh, you know, a deal would be done. But we always, I think, had this reservation that with the nut jobs in the Republican Party, um, having such an influence over Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, uh, particularly that, you know, anything was possible. But in the event, um, this week we've seen the House of Representatives and the Senate overnight um, agreeing to uh, lift the ceiling. And basically, without going into the technicalities of it, um, b both parties have agreed to a cap on non-defence spending and the debt ceiling now will not be revisited until January 2025, which is when the next president will be taking office. Uh, what I found interesting was that the Demo 
the moderate Democrats, particularly who had significant misgivings about the deal that Biden had done, um, they basically made the decision that um, it's better to do a deal and accept these things they don't particularly like and the misgivings they have um, than the alternative and, you know, a, a sensible, pragmatic approach. But that flew in the face of what the radical Republicans were basically trying to push over the last month, that they had a belief, obviously, that default and huge cuts in public spending in the event of the debt ceiling being breached um, would be would do more damage to the administration than actually to the US economy and the people of America. But thankfully, um, the moderates have won out. A deal has been done and we can now remove this from the agenda um, for the foreseeable future. We will be revisiting it at the beginning of 2025, but for the moment, uh, it's gone as an issue. And I say amen to that. Yeah, the, the, there may well be some blowback. There's still some speculation that McCarthy may not keep his job as a result of this. The the nut jobs, as you call them, the Freedom Caucus, I think is one group of nut jobs, are clearly gunning for him. And his hold on power, I think, is tenuous at the best of times. So we'll see. The thing I'd add to that is that this has all been about posturing. It's not been about fiscal policy. It's not been about taxes and spending. Um, because in order to do proper fiscal policy, you've got to get into the weeds of of all of these different things and these thousands of pages of legislation that are typical budgets in the United States and indeed elsewhere. And if you do that analysis, I haven't. I w- wouldn't claim to have done it, but I've certainly read a few uh, people who have. And the intricacies and the nuances around American fiscal policy, the weird way in which they do a lot of their accounting, their fiscal accounting, all of this needs to be taken into account when you see these headlines, the, these posturing things, people claiming that they've reduced the debt by a trillion over the next decade and all this kind of stuff. Take it all with a pinch of salt uh, because there's all sorts of assumptions built into these projections. They are projections, they are forecasts, and you know what we think about those. But at the end of the day, the conclusion that I see some very sensible people have reached is that Biden has run rings around the Republicans and that it's, it's a real victory for the White House. That's that, as you say, but, but it, it, it is an insane way to run a country. And this is how America is run fiscally, which is perhaps the most important part of economic policy, at least, and it is just nuts. And as you say, it's off the agenda for a while, but it is going to come back, Jim. And it, it, by the looks of things, this this nuttiness will outlast us. 34.1 trillion debt ceiling. Uh, it's a phenomenal amount of debt. What is the sustainability of this? Can the United States continue to just build up this debt? Yeah, of course it can. I mean, it has done without any problems whatsoever. And it will continue to do so. Now, if something were to change, if the dollar were not to be the reserve currency of the world and there are all sorts of interesting things going on with respect to um, Russia and China and a few other countries are trying to make their currencies reserve currencies or at least trying to stop the dollar from being the reserve currency in the world. But something has to play that role. And I can't see the Chinese allowing their country currency to be the reserve currency of the world, even if, even if we wanted it to. Russia, no chance, of course. Um, the Brazilian currency, uh, yeah, good luck with that. So, um, so the, the issue of digital money actually is very interesting in the context of whether the dollar will retain its reserve currency status. 
all this stuff about central bank, digital currencies. This is not a comment about Bitcoin, I can assure you. Um, more about the serious side of things about central banks issuing digital money. That has an interesting implication for the dollar as a reserve currency. So things might change is the point of that little ramble. But for as long as they don't, I think that the US will be able to run up whatever debts it likes without any financing implications at all. I mean, what are the Chinese? The Chinese are big holders of US debt. Um, are they going to start selling it all? Who are they going to sell it to if they do? And at what price? I mean, you know, you can see that there are issues and questions, but you asked me, will they be able to continue doing this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and all countries can, you know, for the foreseeable future, for as far as I can see, the US will never default on its debt unless these nutcases in Washington actually cross the line during one of these posturing standoffs that they do. Then I think if they were to cross that line and default on the debt, then my answer to your question would be a little bit different and say, well, they've shot themselves in both feet here and they may they may find borrowing on world markets a little trickier going forward. In the absence of something really stupid like that happening, yeah, they can continue borrowing. There is no ceiling on the debt. Tell me, Chris, you made a comment there that any country can continue to borrow at this sort of rate. I mean, are you delving into the realms of modern monetary theory? No, 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 no. I didn't say every country could do it at this rate. I mean, every country, no country has a ceiling, a natural ceiling uh, beyond which it cannot borrow. Um, uh, There's no monetary amount. The first thing to do is to say, when you quote me $34 trillion or whatever, I, I need to see this as a proportion of your economy. I need to see this in context. Quote, get, just throwing big numbers out there is pointless. You know, every country has a lot of... It's 117% of US GDP. Okay, which is high historically. It's not the highest it's ever been. And we can start to have that kind of discussion. And we can say that typically when countries go over some percentage of GDP, they start to face some issues. Talk about Greece in the way in which it clearly got around its debt problems by doing two things, by defaulting on a lot of its debt and then pursuing sensible economic policies for the last few years. Some people would argue with that description, but the economic policies that they pursued over the last few years now mean that Greece is able to borrow again on the markets. It too, at the moment, no, it did, but it no longer has a ceiling on its debt. And we can then have all of those weird discussions about deficits and debt. One of the things that isn't remarked upon about all government debt, all of the debt that we have, is that over the last two years, that the real value of all these debts has gone down by, what, 15% maybe, as a result of inflation. And so there's been a huge, huge reduction in the real burden of debt around the world as a result of all of this inflation. Heaven forbid, Jim, that anybody thought that that was a good idea ahead of the event, but it certainly suits some vested interests. If you're the person or the entity, the country that owes a lot of money, that has a lot of debt, it really suits you to have a burst of inflation, doesn't it? I'm not suggesting for a second that it was deliberate, but, you know, follow the money, as somebody once said. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, but I, I suppose you think back on what happened in the UK last October with Quasi Quartang and Liz Truss's budget, uh, the market reaction from that and the the fact that it nearly brought the US pension the UK pension system down just shows you you know there there is a limit uh, set by the markets as to how much a country can borrow absolutely and that's my point I, I said that if the US was to shoot itself in the foot with some, some really dopey 
policies like defaulting on its debt, the market reaction would be very important and they would have a binding constraint. The UK did something spectacularly stupid last autumn and lo and behold, they got a big, big binding constraint all of a sudden on what they could and could not do. So my answer, yes, you can borrow, is predicated on the assumption that you do sensible things, not stupid things. On the eurozone inflation and economic activity and indeed interest rate front, um, I think it was a telling week as well. Um, earlier in the week, we had European economic sentiment indicator out showing that sentiment has hit a six month low in May. And the reasons given was a stagnant economy, high inflation and a rapid rise, the, the rapid rise in interest rates we've seen over the past 10 months. And sentiment was particularly weak in manufacturing rather than in services, although there was some weakness in the services side, but it was mainly manufacturing. And I think that feeds into the story we told in a previous podcast about the German economy technically going into recession in the first quarter of this year, um, largely because of the importance of manufacturing in the German economy and you know, the, the slowdown in manufacturing exports to China particularly. Uh, but it's it's interesting that the overall sentiment indicator is reflecting this. Um, and then we, we also, it, it, it was clear, and I think this is really important, that within that sentiment survey, that the selling price expectations of firms, in other words, what firms expect to do on the price front going forward, those expectations are falling, you know, suggesting that inflationary pressures in the future are going to ease significantly. Um, there was other signs of weakness. Bank lending to households um, w showed the eighth consecutive monthly decline of easing lending growth. And it's the slowest pace of expansion since April 2017. So clearly um, it's either the demand for lending from Households is falling in the face of the cost of living pressures, rising interest rates, economic uncertainty and so on. Um, or perhaps we're seeing uh, the US banking problems back in March and again in early May starting to reflect themselves in a more cautious approach from the European banking system. And indeed, lending to companies in the euro area also fell to the slowest pace since March 2022. So clear indications that the interest rate policies pursued are starting to work. And then we got, I, I guess, the most tangible evidence of that with the Eurozone inflation rate in May. The headline rate fell from 7% to 6.1%. Um, food inflation is declining. Energy prices are falling. Um, service sector inflation has fallen from 5.2% to 5%. Core inflation, which excludes food and energy. And I suppose it is the indicator that central banks are most looking at at the moment, but it fell from 5.6% to 5.3%. So clearly, the inflationary pressures are starting to weaken in the euro area. And indeed, um, an ECB council member, I'll probably get the pronunciation all wrong here, but Francois Villeroy de Gallo. He came out overnight in a speech arguing that the interest rate hikes uh, we still have to do are relatively marginal and that most of the path is now complete. We just have to sit back and see how the transmission of what has already been done feeds into the system. So in other words, um, he was basically saying that um, 
interest rates will probably rise by another quarter to a half percent and then the European Central Bank will stand back and just see over a prolonged period what impact that has on the key inflation target. So a bit of good news there, I think. Great stuff. All right, Jim, I think we should call it there. We've run out of time again. And uh, some of the topics, as always, that we had up our sleeve, we'll cover next time. So thanks. Good to talk. Good to talk, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 